0: Welcome, welcome to Fellowship. I'm Elizabeth Guillaume Kuna, otherwise known as Lisa, and it's my privilege to bring you God's Word Um, this morning. I've been a member here at Hope Fellowship for over 16 years, and you guys have been my calling church and my supporting church through all of that. Um, As many of you know, I'm in a period of transition right now. And um, I'm very happy to say that in September, I will be starting as Hebron's interim minister. Um, So, thank you. (laughs) Not all the paperwork is done yet because vacations in August and signatures that need to happen, but we are trusting um, that that will happen in due time. And meanwhile, um, I will be getting started. In there um, in a couple weeks. So um, I'm excited about that. It's going to be strange not coming here as uh, as much. Um, I, I think my boys will keep their memberships here for now because it is just an interim position and so we'll see how this year works. Um, but I covet your prayers for this transition as we go forward from there. All right now we um, kind of neat for me to be able to give this sermon on welcome to fellowship in our series where we talk about a fellowship and you guys being my fellowship and uh, my body of believers standing with me through all these years but today we are in the midst of a series about welcome to church and we're looking in this series at the last few chapters of Luke and the first couple chapters of Acts And we learn in those chapters about the start of the church. And in doing so, too, we can learn about our own church and our own communities and our own place within that. So welcome to fellowship. A fellowship is a group of people that share something in common. In this gathering today, we have many differences. And yet, we also have many things in common. And the most important one is our hope, our faith in God as expressed in God the Creator, in Jesus, and in the Holy Spirit. And today, I'll be reading Acts chapter 1. Now, the book of Acts starts where the book of Luke ended. It's a continuation of Jesus story as told by Luke. And the the end of Acts talks about Jesus' ascension and the or the end of Luke talk about Jesus' extent ascension and the beginning of Acts as well. And you'll notice as I read the first chapter that the word fellowship is not actually used. And that word itself shows up only at the end of chapter 2, which Pastor Josh is going to Um, bring to us next week. And yet, what is happening in Acts chapter 1 makes the fellowship described in Acts chapter 2 possible. So let's open our Bibles, whether that's your physical book or on your phone or just on the screen, to Acts chapter 1. So with God's word open before us, let's take a moment to ask God to be with us in the reading. Oh Lord, thank you for giving us your word, for giving us the word of Jesus. And now, as we read this together, open our hearts to hear your word, to understand it, and help it to make a difference as we live our lives for you. In your name we pray, amen. Acts chapter 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote all about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and get, gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, when he was eating with them, he gave this command, "'Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit.' Then they gathered around him and asked him, "'Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel?' They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside him. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand there looking up into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives A Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture has been, had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, akaldama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership, Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us, for one of these must become a witness with us to his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the eleven apostles. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Perhaps you, like my husband, know of a kid who came home from their first day of kindergarten crying and angry. She had been told she would learn how to read at school. And there she was. She had been there the whole day and still did not know how to read. She felt that she had been lied to My oldest son, too, came home from after his first day of school and declared that school is actually just about learning to sit still and be quiet. To this day, those are not his strengths, and certainly not what he had hoped school would be about. Preparing for things never seems as fun or as important as the actual event. Has anybody been on summer vacation or going in these last couple weeks of summer? Did it take planning and preparation? Over the past couple days, we have been getting ready for a camping and canoeing. Okay, really, it's been David that's been getting ready. Um, The rest of us are just kind of going along. Um, But nonetheless, we anticipate the actual time we spend outside in creation being a whole lot more fun than the preparing to get there. And yet, if we're really going to have a good time and not run out of food halfway through or not forget a tent or a sleeping bag, we need that time of preparing. Sometimes even our preparation for things can be even more important than the actual event. We read in the book of Acts from the New Testament. When we read it, we start at the beginning, and when I, say, when I said that and wrote that out, I immediately jumped to the um, Sound of Music song. A beginning is? Yes, a very good place to start. Um, so that's very good. We start Acts at the beginning. But then after the first 12 verses, Jesus is, raised, uh, is ascended into heaven, the disciples go back to Jerusalem, we often just skip over the next part. And then we get to chapter 2, because after all, that's where the good stuff is, right? I mean, that's where the visible presence of the Holy Spirit comes and rests on the disciples. But if we skip verses 13 to 26 of chapter 1, we will miss how God is working, how God works in the lives of these believers. And then it becomes easier to miss what God is doing in our own lives when we prepare for what God has called us to do. Near the beginning of Acts 1, the disciples are anxious to see Jesus work in their world. They had been on a roller coaster of a journey over the last few months with Jesus. When Jesus was crucified, their dreams were dead. They had no idea. They were in despair. All the things that they thought Jesus was going to do and be were gone. And then Jesus returned, resurrected, and their hopes were sparked once again. Jesus had the power over death. Now they thought there is nothing stopping Jesus from restoring the kingdom of Israel, of the kingdom to Israel. But they're still not really getting it. And once again Jesus corrects their assumptions because God's plans are much larger than just the nation of Israel. God's plans are for the whole world to be restored to right relationship with God and with each other. Instead of a restored political kingdom of Israel, the disciples are given a new mission and a new vision, and then they're told to go and wait. This is not an easy task, and I'm not talking about the mission to be Jesus' witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That is, of course, difficult in its own right, but the really hard part that is so difficult, sometimes even infuriating, is the task of waiting after having been given a vision and a mission. It's like the seminary graduate who has, been, who has completed all the steps necessary to be called to a ministry position, has heard the call from God to preach and teach, to be a witness, and then waits and waits and waits for an actual call from a church. Or it's like that kindergarten kid who has the desire to learn but discovers that learning does not and cannot happen in one day. Or it's like a church who has a vision for a specific mission to sponsor a refugee or provide vacation Bible school and then is told to wait. Time is not right. Or the church who suddenly enters, you know, just hypothetically a global pandemic and everything's put on hold and then when it starts again, everything's different and has to start all over again. It's like the young adult who longs to share their life with someone, but then their significant other breaks up with them, and they're forced to wait. Waiting is not easy. The disciples first responded to the instructions to wait by staring up into the sky, staring at the spot they had last seen Jesus. In verses 10 and 11, the phrase into the sky or into heaven is used four times. This repetition in these two verses emphasized that the disciples were not supposed to be still standing there gazing up into the sky, hanging around, waiting for Jesus to return. They were to be witnesses to what they had seen and experienced. In the movies men in black, they keep the earth safe from alien threats. But here, there are men in white. They come and they nudge the disciples to get out of their stupefied state of just looking up. Why are you looking up there? You won't find what you're looking for up there. Time to get on with saving the world. They assure the disciples that Jesus will come back. But even so, this was not where they're supposed to be. This was not how they were to spend their time. So they take the angel's hint and they go back to Jerusalem and they wait, as Jesus instructed. But notice, waiting does not mean a twiddling of your thumbs, just kind of sitting there doing nothing. Jesus had taught the disciples about the day of the Lord, of waiting for Jesus' return. Especially in Matthew 25, he tells a lot of stories about what this day would look like. One of these stories is the parable of the talents, which tell about a man who, before going on a journey, entrusts his wealth to his servants. Five bags of gold to one, two to another, and one to the third. Then he leaves. Two of the servants use this time to double what they had been given. The third hides it. And when the man comes back, returns it just as he received it. The man praises the servants who doubled what they had been given and scolds the one who did nothing. The type of waiting the disciples were to do was not sitting around waiting for Jesus' return, but an active waiting Now, don't take from the story that waiting for Jesus' returns is about making money. That is not what the story is about. Waiting, the, the waiting the disciples were supposed to be doing was trusting, praying, worshiping, and being together, creating fellowship. And you know, the Holy Spirit had not yet come on the disciples, but that doesn't mean the Holy Spirit wasn't there working at the time. Acts, the first two verses of Acts kind of set that scene. When Luke writes, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote all about, that Je- about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the disciples he had chosen. The Holy Spirit was already in the world. It didn't come for the first time in the world on Pentecost. It was already there. It's just that the disciples and apostles didn't know it yet. As the disciples waited in Jerusalem for what Jesus had promised, they didn't even know what they were waiting for. Jesus, didn't, Jesus did not tell them what this gift was going to look like, but just that it was coming. You know that phrase, you'll know it when you see it. In action movies this usually means there's going to be a large explosion and that's the sign. But here the disciples go and they wait for the gift. They don't know how it's gonna look. They wait for the gift that will help them complete the mission that they have been given. And during this time of waiting, fascinating and important things are happening that can teach us about our own times of waiting in our own lives and in the life of the church. First, they were all gathered together in one room. We find out that there's 120 of them. That's a lot of people in a room, and I'm assuming, you know, it probably was the upper room where Jesus had the Last Supper with his disciples, and I don't know how big that was. And then verse 13 lists all the apostles who were there, and then it also says, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now this might not seem like much of a big deal to us. We're sitting here, men and women scattered around, everybody just together. But in that time for the Jewish people then, it was not their usual way of worshiping. The temple had a number of different courts, certain rooms that were reserved for certain people. There was the Gentile court where non-Jewish and unclean Jewish people would worship including those with disabilities and other things that caused them to live on the margins of society. Then there was the women's court, the place where the Jewish women would worship. And then there was the inner court where the ritually pure Jewish men would worship. They did not traditionally worship altogether. But this new community of Jesus would be different. Barriers were broken down. The walls between the courts had disappeared and all were invited to worship God together in the same place. The next section of that verse also mentions Jesus' brothers. Now these were the same brothers who earlier in Jesus' ministry encouraged him to leave Galilee and show himself to the world. And now they did not do that because they believed Jesus was the Messiah, they were doing that because they wanted to out Jesus as a fraud and a fake. But now even those who had previously doubted Jesus were included in this group of believers. They counted among those who were witnesses to all that Jesus had done during his time on earth. 120 people Now that number is significant because it was the minimum number of people that were needed to start a new congregation or a new synagogue in the Jewish faith. As these Christ followers met together and they waited and prepared for the gift Jesus was sending them, they were becoming a community, a fellowship of people. And they were legitimate in their own eyes, and in the eyes of their community. As these emerging fellowship of Christ followers prayed and waited together, leaders were also showing up. Jesus' physical absence meant a huge leadership vacuum. The 11 remaining disciples were obvious leaders, but there needed to be more who stood out among them. And Peter steps into this role. I often have thought about Peter's first taking up the role as leader after the Holy Spirit comes, right? When he goes and he stands up in front of the whole community of people gathered at Pentecost and tells them all about Jesus. But Peter's leadership actually begins before. Begins during this time of waiting and preparing. It might even start before Jesus was gone from their presence, when Jesus told him, You're my rock, upon I'm going to build my church. And Peter would often be that spokesperson for the the disciples, and not always to good effect. But in this gathering of witnesses that are here after Jesus' ascension, that's when we really see Peter stand up and take that leadership without immediately messing it up. So Peter stands before the people, And the group gather together, and he acknowledges the loss that they have. I'm not talking about the loss of Jesus, because they're beginning to see that Jesus isn't actually lost to them, but the loss of their fellow disciple, Judas. It's easy for us to forget about Judas. His role is over now, he's gone, he's dead, he was a betrayer, and Jesus conquered all that. But Judas had been a friend to these people. He had been a follower of Jesus. They thought he was part of their fellowship. But he betrayed Jesus. And his betrayal and suicide was not just a betrayal of Jesus. It was also a betrayal of the other disciples. I wonder sometimes if the disciples felt guilty about not seeing what Judas was up to and stopping him or if the disciples wondered, would I would have done that? Could I have been the betrayer? The disciples had grief that they needed to deal with. In Peter's speech to the rest of the group of followers, we see how they are starting, though, to get it. They're starting to see scriptures the way that Jesus wants them to see. Peter begins to find meaning for what has happened with Judas in the light of scripture. He quotes two different passages from the book of Psalms. So here now is this uneducated fisher from Galilee. He's now up there leading a group of people, teaching them about how to look at scripture differently, how to look at scripture in light of what Jesus had done. The coming of the Holy Spirit will change Peter even more and change his understandings of the scriptures even further. But it begins in this time of waiting, of preparing, of praying. Those years of following Jesus are starting to pay dividends. Again, it's not about money. But today the church's understanding of scripture, we continue to develop as things happen in our lives and the world around us. Because scripture never stops speaking into our lives and the situations we find ourselves. We've seen this in the, change, in the changes churches have come to around issues like slavery and race and women in leadership. And all these things are different understanding of scripture. It doesn't happen lightly or easily. But with prayer, worship, discussion, and struggles, we learn to interpret scripture in new ways. And as we learn and discover, the church grows, becomes stronger, and we, we hope, and we start to look more like Jesus. In this time of waiting, praying, and worshiping, Peter directs the gathered believers to choose someone to replace Judas. Leaders are needed. And numbers, they wanted the right number of leaders. There had been 12 tribes of Israel. There had been 12 apostles. There needed to be 12 again to be complete. It's interesting, though, because after Acts 1, we never hear about Matthias again in the Bible. And we never know how they, if they, how they continued to replace those 12 leaders We do know that other leaders rise up from this group of people and from within, without the community. James, one of Jesus' brothers who was there, he becomes a prominent leader. And then there's leaders like Paul or Saul that come into the church other ways. But we don't know how they all fit with this number 12. But what we do know about leaders in Acts 1 is we see that God is preparing the church for the equipping of the Holy Spirit. As the followers of Jesus gather together, praying and worshiping and becoming the church, they are together becoming that fellowship. You know, this pattern of waiting, of being given a vision and a mission and then told to wait, it can be found in other parts of Scripture too. Later on in the book of Acts, The apostle Saul, or the Saul, comes to meet Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he's converted, and he encounters Jesus, and he starts preaching for Jesus rather than against him, and he has all sorts of, you know, he tries to come into the apostles, and the apostles are a little bit not sure about this guy who used to arrest believers now preaching Jesus. So they don't accept him right away, but eventually he gets in, and but the whole community doesn't know what to do with him and his life is threatened so the apostles say you know what you need to go away from here for a while and so he goes back to his hometown of tarsus and scholars estimate that he waited and prayed for 13 years before he came back and began his ministry that's a long time to wait when you have a vision You know, these last few months of my own life have been all about preparing and waiting for what God had for me next. It was almost a year ago that I started to explore transitional ministry and interim ministry, and still the paperwork's not done. It's about waiting. Waiting and active active waiting, praying, worshipping, preparing is the pattern of life. And we are invited to embrace what God is doing in the waiting rather than fighting against it or spending our time longing for the real action. You know, even this gathering of people that we do weekly together as a fellowship, as Hope Fellowship, reflects this pattern of waiting and celebrates the time of waiting and preparing. Because for most of our week, most of the time, we're not in this building. We're out in the rest of our lives, being Jesus' witnesses wherever we work or live. And then we are invited to come back together on Sunday mornings to prepare ourselves, to take time to gather, to worship, to wait. Our places of worship are invited to be like the fellowship that started in Acts chapter one, where barriers are broken down, where people are gathered together and are of like mind. Not the kind of like mind in the sense where we always agree on everything, but like mind in proclaiming God as Lord of our lives and Lord of the world. And it is in these places of worship, this fellowship, where we process our losses, where we try to make sense of what happens in the rest of our lives, where we wrestle with scripture and discover its meaning. It is here that we come as imperfect people, like the disciples who were doubters like Thomas and deniers like Peter. And we find grace And forgiveness. Find second and third and 49th chances. It is when we gather together that leaders are discovered, rise up and take their place in the community. It was in a fellowship of believers, similar to the one here, that I first heard God's call in my life. And it was here in this fellowship of believers where I have been nurtured and grown in my call. It is here where after our time of worship we are sent out, equipped to participate in bringing the kingdom of God to the world. Our times of waiting are not useless. During these times of waiting we are invited not just to look ahead but to discover how the Holy Spirit is working in the waiting. Sometimes our times of waiting are also times to recuperate, because in this life, sometimes what we are called to is difficult and can be overwhelming. And so we are called to times of restoration and healing. And we will learn, just like the kindergarten student who who was disappointed that she did not learn to read in one day, that it takes a lifetime to learn all that God wants us to know. You know, one of the things that we do as a fellowship of believers in Christ is communion, the Lord's Supper. This celebration, this meal of bread and juice, it draws us closer together and closer to God as we remember what Jesus has done for us. So beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, this Holy Supper which we are about to celebrate is a feast of remembrance, of communion, and of hope. And when you came in, you were invited to pick up a little package of the bread and, and juice, and if you don't have it, now would be a good time to um, to find one. So we come in remembrance. Remembrance that our Lord Jesus Christ was sent of the Father into the world to assume our flesh and blood, to fulfill for us all obedience to live to the divine law, even to the bitter and shameful death of the cross. And by his death, resurrection, and ascension, God established a new and eternal covenant of grace and reconciliation that we might be accepted of God and never be forsaken by him. We have come to have communion with this same Christ who has promised to be with us always, even to the end of the world. And we have come to have communion with each other, being drawn together in our common belief that, that the Lord is God, of our lives, and being made into a fellowship of people ready to serve God. We come in hope, knowing that the troubles of our world are not forever, and knowing that the hope Jesus offers is enough. So all who are truly sorry for their sins, who sincerely believe in the Lord Jesus as their Savior and who desired to live in obedience to him are now invited to come with gladness to the table of the Lord. Let us pray. Holy God, in thanks for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, in the joy of his resurrection, in the hope of his coming again, we present ourselves a living sacrifice and come to the table of our Lord. Amen.